BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When life-threatening weather is occurring, the National Weather Service not only monitors the threat, but also puts out products through a variety of sources in order to convey the severity and timing of the threat. But how exactly do they accomplish this? In the age of technology where a tweet can be just as widely seen as a bulletin on television, how does the National Weather Service balance the juggling act of ensuring their message is seen by as many people as possible, but also staying on top of the threat as it is unfolding? Joining us today is Kevin Cooley, the Director of Office of Planning and Programming for Service Delivery for the National Weather Service. And that's exactly what his job does. Kevin, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Good morning, Dr. Shepard. It's great to be here with you. It was really an honor to have you. And, you know, we're right in the midst of the uptick in severe weather season. So this is a very timely episode. So I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this. You know, there's a question that we ask every Weather Geeks guest, and I I don't know if it's appropriate to you, but I'll ask it. Are you a Weather Geek? And if so, how'd you become one? Or how did you really get into the career that you're doing at the National Weather Service? Uh, I'm, I'm definitely a Weather Geek. Uh, but I think my path to becoming one was, was a bit different. I, I think every weather geek has an event that sort of stimulated their thought. And my event was Hurricane Hugo in Charleston, South Carolina in the uh, late 1980s. So I was in Charleston, South Carolina for Hugo and got to experience that up close and personal. And uh, having grown up in the mid-Atlantic, I'd seen winter weather, but I'd never really seen a hurricane quite like that. And it stimulated an interest in me. And that uh, later on in my career, when I had an opportunity to join the Weather Service, when uh, when Louis Uccellini, Dr. Uccellini, uh, offered me a position at NSEP, uh, I, the, my experience with Hugo was a was a great in, influence on on wanting to join the organization. And I'm just uh, I'm, I'm I'm honored to be a part of the organization and the great meteoro- meteorologists and engineers and scientists that. Um, that, uh, that develop and uh, deliver the weather forecast watches and warnings to benefit the public and our partners across the nation. Let, let me give the listeners a little bit of your background. You've, you've got an impressive list of things, and I'll try to kind of highlight some of them throughout the podcast. You're currently the director of the Office of Planning and Programming for Service De- Delivery, or OPPSD, at yes. the National Weather Service. And you've been in that position, I understand, since 2015. That's correct. Uh, in, in that role, you ensure the end-to-end, fully integrated capabilities needed to enable uh, the National Weather Service to achieve its strategic objectives for building a weather-ready nation. You report directly to the NOAA Assistant Administrator for Weather Services. Uh, and you also have served as the Executive Director and Command Information Officer for the U.S. Fleet Cyber Command. I uh, did that for about five years. Was the Secretary of the Navy as the Assistant Deputy Chief, uh, served the Secretary of the Navy as the Assistant Deputy Chief Manager Management Officer uh, for the Department of the Navy. Uh, again, you had another stint at NOAA, I guess, back in 2002 to 2006, uh, I guess, involving chief information officer and so forth, and for served for five years in the United States Marine Corps. Thank you for your service, by the way, and earned a Bachelor of Arts degree, summa cum laude, from the Citadel in 1990. Is all of that somewhat correct? 
That's that's correct. So I've I, I, I've had a wandering path to get to. Uh, well, I think it you know it it also breeds experience, and that's what yes. we need in these times. Um, one of the things that really brought brought to bear wanting to do this show is that as we've ramped up the 2020 severe weather season, there were tornadoes that happened recently uh, in parts of Iowa, and there were some sort of media coverage and social media coverage, some misinformation, frankly, also uh, on uh, the dissemination of warnings and information related to those tornadoes and so forth. So I recommend it to, uh, you know, our folks at the Weather Channel. It's like, let's have the top people, National Weather Service on and, and hear, hear a little bit about that. But, and I want to get into that. We are going to sure. get into that. Before we do that, talk us through how the National Weather Service adapts to changing technology when it comes to disseminating information. I mean, I, I'm sure it's a different a decade ago go than it is now. So how, how have you managed that transition? Sure, sure. Perhaps I'll, perhaps I'll start out by just sort of acknowledging, you know, the, the impacts of the events out in Iowa. I mean, everybody in the weather service from the forecaster at the WFO uh, to the, uh, to the support organizations back around the headquarters is, is just completely committed to our mission around public safety. And, um, and we, we all feel deeply when lives are lost in events like this and, and are, we're very saddened by the, by the seven deaths in Iowa and our thoughts uh, remain with uh, the loved ones of those individuals and everybody else impacted by the, by the event. Um, the weather service is a, is, is a science and technology service organization. It's a science and engineering uh, service organization where, where we, we rely on technology to enable nearly everything that we do. And so we strike a balance to a certain extent around how and when we bring new technologies to bear in the weather service environment. So on one hand, we want to use the newest technology. On the other hand, we can't really be bleeding edge because we've got this operational mission that requires high availability and reliability. So we're typically not the we're not the first mouse. OK, we're the second or third mouse to the cheese. And, 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 and it is that way because we need to make sure that the technologies that we're employing and the way that we employ those technologies are going to have that combination of performance reliability and availability that the public and our partners expect us to have. Okay. So with that in mind, we aggressively test pilot and pilot both new science and technology in partnership with our OAR, Office of Atmospheric Research Partners inside of NOAA, our cooperative institutes um, outside of NOAA, which are affiliated with a wide variety of academic institutions across the country. And, and we look for opportunities where we can evaluate and pilot new technologies, whether they're information technology based things like cloud or artificial intelligence, or whether they're new scientific approaches to apply to our models, to our forecast process, or to the decision support services that we provide um, to the public. We seek out opportunities to do that in a risk managed way so we can get the benefits of those new approaches while maintaining the uh, the operational reliability and surety that's required. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that overview. I think you know, many of our listeners of the Weather Geeks podcast, I think, have some understanding of the National Weather Service, your role. And as I've argued and written many times in Forbes, 
the one of the biggest values to the nation to me is the National Weather Service. And uh, when, when you look at what your budget is compared to your service to the nation, I mean, it's, it's a couple of cups of coffee uh, per citizen uh, in a year. And yet you're, you're providing life saving services and so forth. So I, I think we provide know, good value to, to the nation. It's extremely good. value. I mean, I, I, I again, I can't overemphasize how much good value it is. And from your value, uh, other services and, and companies are able to sort of value add on what you do, but your your baseline model information and weather satellites and radar and and staff and and so forth are really the the, the underlying sort of infrastructure and resources. And so we thank you. Uh, with that said, we're we, we're coming up on the peak season of the storm season. Um, we did mention the Iowa uh, earlier, and th- there were some discussions and some issues and delaying uh, delays related to, from what I understand, some IT issues upstream in your southern region office or central central region office. Um, just talk us through what happened there, and 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 I, I think one of the things that I tried to convey is that even with those things happening, uh, there was still adequate warning. I think you're still uh, in the region of concern, 20 minutes out warning, which is still well above the average for the um, lead time for tornadoes. But talk us through what happened that day from the dissemination and IT challenges standpoint. Sure, sure. I I think that 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 might be valuable for our listeners for me to provide a bit of context for this, right? Because we're going to talk technology and there's there's some complexity here. And if I dive straight into that, I'll just be talking tech stuff and, and then, you know, folks won't really understand what happened. So I think there's a few, a few things that bear emphasis and, and Dr. Shepard, you touched on one of them. Uh, first, the performance of the meteorologists at the Des Moines and Davenport Port offices was outstanding. In, in the days leading up to the March 5th event, days before the meteorologist in those offices, based on uh, guidance from our Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma, were talking with emergency management and public safety partners in Iowa, in their local areas, to inform them of the heightened possibility for severe weather. And then during that day, every tornado that touched down in Iowa on March 5th had an active warning in place and provided in advance of those tornadoes touching down. Publics, and, and, and I'll get into this in more detail in a few minutes, but we have multiple channels, multiple paths through which both partners and the public can receive warning information. And so some of those paths experienced delays, others did not. And so key pathing like no weather radio, the emergency alert system that activates TVs and sirens in these local areas, and NWS chat experienced no technical delay in the issuance of warning and enabling the discussions of the implications of those warnings with key partners in the local areas in Iowa that were impacted by these storms. So, and uh, Dr. Shepard, you mentioned that uh, the the lead time performance for this. We had an average lead time performance of 23 minutes for these events, which is more than double our national average. And this was accomplished with a probability of detection of tornadoes of 100%, and importantly, a false alarm rate of only 43% against targets, uh, GIPRA targets of 70% for those metrics, right? So this was really good performance. The, 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 the meteorologist in these office has provided effective warnings with very low false alarm rates, 
which is just which is just tremendous. I I have so much respect for what the forecasters and meteorologists and these local offices do, um, and this is just a great example of their their combination of their commitment and their and their competence. Now, second, Mark, uh, Dr. Shepard, we really appreciate the article that you wrote for us because these kinds of events are emotional things. Tornadoes are scary things. They happen very quickly. In this case, we had people die, right? And, and that can trigger a lot of interest. And in some cases, uh, initial reporting out of the media contains inaccuracies. And, and the, the, the description that you gave in your Forbes article really helped correct some of those uh, inaccuracies. Thirdly, there is some there's a there's a, a variety of systems that are in play when we we, we, we issue a warning related to something like a, a tornado. So in each forecast office, we use a system called the Advanced Weather Interactive Processing System or AWIPS to visualize a, a, a bunch of observations and model guidance and other information to create forecasts. We also use AWIPS to create watches and warnings. And we want to share these forecast watches and warnings broadly across the nation and the weather enterprise. Okay, and so we have diverse diverse paths that are enabled by uh, a meshed ter terrestrial communications network and a central network control facility. So I want to make sure our listeners, when you say terrestrial, I'm, I'm interpreting that as mean land based. Land base, that's correct, on land, fiber optic on land, and a central network control facility and a satellite broadcast network to enable that information share. And so when forecast watches and warnings are generated at a local forecast office, the, 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 the way they're digitally represented is something we call a message. And these messages are transmitted to hub sites located in that meshed land network for forwarding to this network control facility, which then ultimately shares these messages all across the entire nation. Folks that have NOAA port, folks that look at, at information we provide on our websites, via our, our, our dissemination capability, everybody that sees that information gets it through this transmission from this WFO to this hub site. This logical hub and spoke network of forecast offices generating messages and forwarding them to hub sites is a key aspect of this underlying system and enables a speedy sharing of their information from this local uh, site, local forecast office all across the nation. For life and safety warnings, we also have an immediate and duplicative path to sending these warning messages out to these hubs. And that is no weather radio. So at the forecast office, a warning is directly sent out no weather radio without having to transmit a hub. And it also goes to the local emergency alert system, which again activates televisions and warning sirens and things like that without having to transmit or transit these hubs. So, but in order to provide for multiple sources, radio, television, siren, web, chat, wireless phones, we have to transmit these messages out through uh, hubs. 
And so now I've now I've set this context around messages going to a hub. Let me talk about exactly what happened. On yeah, Monday. I was going to say, I think so. Yeah, that was really good context because right. I think a lot of people don't understand that. I, 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 I'm in the weather enterprise and some of that was new to me. Right. And so I think that was important context. Now, specifically because there were issues that day. Yeah, so, they were. so what happened? So let me get right. Let me get to exactly what they were. So on March 5th, Okay, actually, on March 4th, we have a, uh, a, a, a message hub location in Dallas, Fort Worth. This hub location is one of 12 in the country. It serves as the primary message receive, receiving an aggregation site for the Des Moines forecast office. On March 4th, there was a fiber optic cable in the Dallas, Fort Worth area that was cut. And this caused the Dallas-Fort Worth hub site to lose its land connection to the rest of the weather service network. And, and when that happened. Do, do we know how that was cut? And is there any information on that at this point? Uh, no. I mean, th okay. this, this kind of thing typically happens on any given day. There is either a construction activity okay. or uh, a failure of a piece of equipment on the network. So having sites sort of enter and exit, lose and, and then regain their land connection is something that we, we, we see on a, on a regular basis. And we have uh, a central operations network organization that communicates with the telecommunications companies on a continual basis to monitor the resolution of these types of issues. Okay? Um, in this case, we think it was a construction related, related um, uh, cause on, on a roadside. Um, but when the Dallas-Fort Worth location, which was also serving as a, a message hub for Des Moines, when it lost its land communication path, it invoked the use of what we call VSAT satellite communications. VSAT stands for Very Small Aperture Terminal. It's a small satellite dish, right? And it provides a limited connection between the impacted office and the rest of the weather service network. Okay. And so when, when that hub site went on to VSAT, the sat, this very small aperture satellite communication um, mode on March 4th, um, it was, it was in that mode when we transitioned into March 5th. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with uh, Kevin Cooley of the National Weather Service, and we're, we're taking a deep dive into the dissemination infrastructure of the National Weather Service, and more specifically, uh, uh, how it uh, uh, happened that there were some challenges uh, on a March 5th event in Iowa involving tornadoes, but how the National Weather Service, frankly, overcame those challenges and still got out warnings in a timely fashion. But there were challenges. And so Kevin was just talking about um, what was going what was happening on March 5th. So pick back up in your conversation there. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. So uh, on March 4th, our, our, our location in Dallas, serving as a message hub, lost its land communications and went to a, uh, a satellite backup that had uh, reduced uh, bandwidth, reduced network capacity. Uh, on March 5th, as we had the severe weather uh, across the uh, across the, the, the Midwest, um, the number of messages generated by the offices, including Des Moines, increased. And because of that, with that combination of increased message volume and a decrease in communications bandwidth at the Dallas-Fort Worth message hub resulted in, in queues of messages forming. Okay. And so th- those message queues were the cause of the delay in the receipt of warnings from the Des Moines office for users of NOAA port and wireless phones and um, and and web services. And we're talking about delays on the order of what, five minutes or so? Between two and seven minutes, okay. depending on the time that the message was initiated. Now, during that same time on March 5th, those same warning messages were issued without delay on no weather radio, on the emergency alert system that activates TVs and sirens, and importantly, on our weather service NWS chat environment, which our public safety partners continually monitor. So we were able to notify those partners immediately and continuously during the event. So these partners were getting these messages right away. There was no delay in the receipt of those messages. So anybody that was watching TV had the Chiron or the, t- or the warning buzzer on their TV or sirens in communities triggered by the emergency alert system. Or, you know, those folks got the, got the alerts right away. Folks that were using a cell phone for a wireless message um, would, have, would, have, would have experienced this delay of between two, two and seven minutes. So, that, so that's an important thing, though. So I, mean, I, I think some of the early social media buzz and even some of the broader media buzz was somewhat irresponsible in saying that there were no warnings or if there were there were people weren't warned. That is correct. That's just not. And, I, and that's why I had to step in a little bit and write that article. That's just that was hyperbolic. Yes. Were people there were delays? Were there some challenges that definitely led to some delays in certain aspects of the overall system? Absolutely. And we're, we're not going to dismiss that. And I want to discuss later uh, what lessons may have been learned and how we can sure. improve here. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that there weren't issues. I don't want I'm not sort of being a homer for the National Weather Service, but there were some very false narratives propagating out there. And I, I thought it was I thought it was uh, disingenuous and, and, and actually poor. Yeah, I, I think that I think that you're you're correct there, Dr. Shepard. You know, there the the misimpression generated by the earlier reporting that warnings were not issued was a, was a, was was not correct. Warnings were issued uh, well in advance for all of the tornadoes 
that uh, that occurred in in Iowa on that day. Yeah. For I mean, and, it, yeah. and it, it again, I you know, irrespective of all of that, the professionals in this these offices at Des Moines and other places, and I I just continue to be amazed by uh, the staff in these offices because they 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 find a way because they know what their mission is, and so I, I just want to lift up everyone in that that Des Moines office and any other offices because and, and even and, and even upstream because you found a way, you found a way to, to, to meet, meet your constituents goals. Now, having, having said that, um, are, are there things that we now know from this that we can improve on or do better with, or is this, this the system we're going to have going forward and we just have to find a way to not have construction sites hit those fiber. I mean, I, I, I imagine there are some lessons learned from this. Certainly, certainly there are. So, um, we we don't have the the financial resources to have duplicative land connections to all of our offices. And so we use this very small aperture satellite uh, capability to give us a, a partial backup capability for the loss of land communications to our forecast offices. And in most cases, the uh, the the backup VSAT capability is adequate for our circumstances. What we've learned through this event is that when we have a a, a VSAT or a backup satellite capability at a location that serves as a message hub for AWIPS, that the the capacity provided by that VSAT backup is not adequate to serve as a backup. And so we're doing two things. The first thing is we're altering our our operating procedures so that the the teams at those 12 sites where we have these message hubs, we won't rely on VSAT as a backup, okay? We will rely on, we will rely on, um, we will transition those sites immediately to service backup if they lose land connection. That means that instead of trying to continue to function as a WFO and a river forecast center at that location, we will immediately invoke our operational service backup and that way and and shift the load from the impacted WFO to um, to, uh, adjacent WFOs to satisfy that part of our mission and invoke our backup for a river forecast center located at the hub to the National Water Center. In this way, we will avoid a situation where these message queues will grow, right? And, and, And we know how to do that and that will avoid a reoccurrence of this. At the same time, we're also doing uh, um, uh, analysis of, 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 of how much of that VSAT capability we need. So we might be able to just have the river forecast center go to backup or just have the, the WFO go to service backup and, and, and limit that, that impact. But right now we know how to limit those message queue buildups and we know how to react when they happen. And so we've learned that and we're putting technical and pr- procedural changes in place to avoid a reoccurrence. Yeah. So uh, do you consider that sort of a Band-Aid fit or a patch? Do ultimately we need uh, a, a duplicate land based system and just which would need an infusion of budget uh, increase for the national, which frankly, I think the National Weather Service needs a budget. I'm mean, just say it anyhow. I mean, I think yeah, I still think what you're doing on about a billion dollar a year budget is 
I think there you need more. I really do. Um, but uh, I guess what I'm asking is, is this sort of a, 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 I guess, sort of a zero to five year fix, zero to one year fix until something else can be done or it, it, that fix is enough, I guess is what I'm asking from a redundancy standpoint. The, the, the change in, in technical management and procedures that we're working now is, is going to be adequate for, for the near and midterm. Okay. Uh, yeah. Ideally, ideally, I'd like to have redundant network connections, land connections at, at all of the locations. Right. Um, we are, uh, we over the future will be transitioning our wide area network, our land based network uh, from the current GSA contract called networks to a new contract called EIS. And that may provide us with enough um, financial benefit to give us the, the headroom. Uh, uh, to make redundant redundant connections, especially to our hubs, affordable for us. I, I hope that's the case, but I'm not sure. I can't commit to that uh, at this point. What What would you? Oh, let me let me take one last break, and then we'll come back, and I'll ask my next question. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Kevin Cooley, director of the Office of Planning and Programming for Service Delivery at the National Weather Service. And we've been talking about dissemination issues within the National Weather Service, uh, the recent tragic event in Iowa, and how the, the Weather Service was able to still, in the midst of a challenge, we all face unforeseen challenges in our lives, in our homes. And uh, the National Weather Service is not uh, immune to the fact that a construction site or whatever the cause could clip a fiber optics cable. That Those things happen indeed. The question is how you deal with it and how you work around to ensure that your mission is still met. Uh, warnings are still gotten out for that event. Uh, 20 plus 20, 23 minutes in advance. Uh, that's still a well ahead of the time. So I, I want to shatter this myth that there were no warnings for that event. That That's just a flat out misinformation out there. And I, I wanted to clear it up here on the Weather Geeks podcast and Forbes and other places, because, you know, I, I'm all about calling things when there are challenges and need, things that need to be done. But I'm also about calling out misinformation as well. With that in mind, um, what do you say when people rate point to this issue or point to recent challenges that you've had with NWS chat? Uh, are there just some other fundamental infrastructure issues at bay that 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 need to be dealt with within the weather service and how, how do we deal with them as an enterprise? Sure, sure. So uh, what I described uh, on March 5th, right, that 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 technical issue really wasn't located in what people might call the dissemination systems for the weather service. When you think about like the web website, web servers, that kind of thing. Okay, this was this was a a situation that involved message queuing, message handling inside of our AWIPS environment. However, uh, Dr. Shepard, you, you do bring up a point, right? We have had challenges and issues with the functioning of our public facing dissemination systems. And, and we recognize that we were going to see a mismatch between uh, demand and supply, if you will, okay, uh, a couple of years ago. And we actually have been working with Congress 
We developed a plan uh, that, that described the kinds of investments that we needed to make to, um, to upgrade our dissemination capability, including NWS chat. And we provided uh, that, uh, that plan uh, through the, the, the budgeting and resourcing process that involves both uh, the department, OMB, uh, and the Hill. And uh, we, are, we are receiving uh, resources, additional financial resources, actually in, in this year's budget, okay, that was just passed and signed by the president to, uh, to inject additional monies into our dissemination environment. And we are going to use those resources, and in, in, in the case of NWS Chat specifically, to, to upgrade uh, that, that application. Uh, we've done. We, we've made some improvements to the application to increase its stability. Over the last year, uh, we made some technical adjustments to it, upgraded the operating system that it runs on. We moved the application, the NWS chat application, from its legacy platform um, called NIDS onto our new and geographically redundant platform called IDP. And both of those things have served to improve the reliability and availability of NWS chat specifically in the last year. However, we know that that application re really needs to be upgraded. We, we, we did a functional analysis. We talked with our partners. We talked with, with folks across our, 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 our forecast offices, and we know that, that that needs to be upgraded. So we engaged in a, an industry search over the last year. Uh, we solicited some, um, some information through requests for information to vendors. We, uh, we selected a potential candidate and actually did an operational demonstration of that chat or collaborative application in the Southeast uh, part of the United States just this last year. And we've reached a conclusion that we've got a valid candidate that we're ready to go. And so based on having received the appropriations from the Congress in the current budget, between now and the end of FY23, we're going to replace NWS chat with a commercial off the shelf a collaborative environment. And that's just one example of the, the attention that's being paid to the dissemination environment uh, specifically and, and uh, things that, that we're going to do to improve both our availability and our performance in that way. So, uh, you know, we take it pretty seriously and we work the, work the process at the federal level really hard to garner the awareness of, of issues, the resources to correct those issues, and then execute the plans uh, at our level once we garner those resources. And I, and I, I want to take this moment to echo your uh, earlier thoughts uh, uh, for those that uh, may have been impacted uh, in, in tragic ways by the tornadic events in <clears throat> Iowa and other places too. On behalf of the, us here at the Weather Geeks and, and Weather Channel, we we also, uh, you know, our hearts go out. And that's why we we do these shows because we we want to help others going forward as well and, and and make sure that good information is out there, accurate information, because, you know, I think we all have the same goal within the weather um, enterprise, which is uh, saving of lives and property. I mean, all of us are, are, are vulnerable to these events at any time. I'm, I'm sitting here in Georgia right now. Um, uh, and, and the South is certainly a place that is in, increasingly under uh, threat of tornadoes as well, right? particularly nighttime tornadoes, which concerns and worries me. So thank thank you, Kevin, for all that you all are doing. We really do have to end it here, but is, is there anything you want to point us to, any places that anything's coming up that we need to know about? Oh, one one thing, I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this. Any, any, any word on a new National Weather Service director at this point, or are we still kind of in a wait and see mode? Or 
Well, sure. First off, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak with you this morning. I, I appreciate it. The, the folks at the Weather Service appreciate it. Anytime we can talk about what we're doing at the Weather Service, the lessons that we're learning um, is, is, is really important. So thank you so much for, for the opportunity today. Uh, we have a, a defined process to, uh, to, to recruit uh, a new weather service director, and that process is occurring apace. And sort of the 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 nature of that process is that it's uh, uh, that that uh, that it's a it's a, it's a guarded process, right? We uh, we there, there are some uh, procedures that we follow to make sure that uh, that we do an effective recruitment. Um, and so the the uh, the, the deputy undersecretary. Uh, uh, for operations at NOAA is running that process and, and it's proceeding apace and and I'm hopeful that over the next uh, next couple of months we'll get a uh, we'll get a candidate and uh, yeah I was just trying to see if I can tease out some breaking news here on weather geeks but I knew that the answer would probably be no yeah <laughs> yes but thank you so much for joining us Kevin this has been a, really been great uh, before I get out of here I gotta do what we do at the end of every podcast we highlight a scientist superstar a great geologist or a weather weenie. This episode's Geek of the Week is Elliot Budd. Elliot is a senior at Valparaiso University with a major in geography. He's hoping to use that degree and knowledge to become a high school science teacher so he can share his passion for science and weather with students. His most memorable weather moment was when a tornado tore through his town, hometown as a part of the outbreak on August 24, 2016 in Indiana and Ohio. Uh, glad to hear that you're wanting to educate the next generation, Elliot. Good luck. Uh, if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Uh, Kevin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. And thank you to all of your colleagues at the National Weather Service, particularly in the trenches in those WFOs. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you again for the opportunity. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And thank you again for listening. And we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.